Blog Talk Radio. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures. I'm your host, Paul Booth. We're here today. We're going to be discussing a film titled Dark Seduction. And I'm going to be bringing in the director, uh, Mr. Greg Travis. Are you with us, Greg? I am. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you for joining us. So, um, uh, welcome everyone to the show. And uh, after we uh, discuss the film with uh, Mr. Travis, we're uh, after he hangs up, I'll be reviewing the film. So you guys are going to want to stick around for that. Um, so again, uh, we want to extend uh, the uh, patience. Uh, we've been planning this uh, episode for a few months now. And we are always thankful when filmmakers uh, hang in there with us schedule-wise and don't just say, give me a press now or I'm out of here. So, welcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, again, welcome to Talking Pictures, Greg. And uh, let's um, kick this off with, uh, personally, I enjoyed the film. I, I really, really admired um I know you. I know we had discussed Wells over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw. I saw I, Howard Hawks. I felt like there was some Billy Wilder in there. Um, obviously, some Bogart inspiration. But yeah. um, for the uh, to kick it off, let's just start with um, for the non-obvious reasons. Uh, why a, a, a film noir in today's market and what's going out there? Well, you know, when we did it 30 years ago in 1984, uh, VHS was relatively new. I think uh, from about 82 to 84, they started releasing all of these old studio films on VHS tape. And so we finally had access to all the old film noirs. And I was a big fan, and I started watching movies I'd never seen before, you know, because you only catch so many of them on normal TV. And, uh, you know, they didn't play a lot of old black and whites back then in the 70s. So uh, I had, you know, been trying to catch up, and I saw films like Lady from Shanghai for the first time. And, uh, you know, I just was really, really fascinated with uh, the 40s period that was so cool. And... um, Steve, my partner in this film, wanted to do something on the lesbian vampires in black and white, and then we sort of put our heads together, and I said, well, let's make a, a film noir with a cool detective who's after the vampires. And then uh, we sort of rewrote the idea before we got started, and then we added on to it as we were going along. And uh, I kept adding scenes for the detective and making him you know more of the film and and because we we did have a lot of scenes for the vampire women that you know some of it ended up getting cut out and uh and making it more about the detective after them so i think that worked a little bit better than what we originally had you know right well because it was definitely like um i i really liked how i felt like um it i love when you can watch a film and just notice that the filmmaker you can be like Okay, cool. They're honoring James Cagney right here. Okay, they they love the way old Warner Brothers gangsters movies were staged. 
Um, obviously, some of the mm-hmm. transitions were Kurosawa swipes. Um, yeah, I really, yeah. I really love when I see that because I'm not saying that all filmmakers, um, but that's the one thing that I feel is most lacking in film today is uh, filmmakers caring or uh, knowing and respecting uh, film history. So mm-hmm. that was what really pulled me in. Um, so you, you mentioned va- like vampire and noir. I mean, that even, I mean, that even throws in uh, appreciation for Universal's old horror films. Um, so you, so you did this noir. And so is there, is there in adding this character on, um, I've actually never had a writer tell me that they added, not adding, but adding more. Um, like, what is that process like to where he, it didn't start out on paper with him in the movie as much as well, it was. Because like, Steve's so. script was originally about the vampires going from one victim to another. And uh, okay. there was a, a loose detective that was sort of after them, but wasn't really an intricate part of the story. And so I'm when we brought in Tyler Horn to play the detective, we saw how good he was, and then I knew that we needed more of him. And so as we were filming, I would write, you know, more scenes for him, and uh, and then expanded the ones that we had already. So we had an opportunity to make the film with some studios. And it was right during the 1984 Olympics, and so some things got freed up for us to use, uh, both cameras and uh, and some you know locations and studios. So I think that was one of the factors of us jumping right into it pretty quickly. You know, um, I think we just uh, basically prepped for about a month before we started shooting, and then we shot for about two or three weeks, and then we came back about six months later and shot another two or three scenes uh, after that. So, Wait, wait I'm sorry. When, what, when was the film shot? 1984. Oh, okay. Wow. I, I, I yeah, somehow... That's why it has that 80s look about it because, right. uh, okay. you know, okay. and I'm doing a documentary to go along with the uh, the release of the the DVD of why it took so long and what all happened and, you know, what the whole backstory is regarding the film because uh the negative got lost the uh you know one of the big problems was the negative cutter had a stroke and disappeared uh with all of the work print and the film and the negative and uh you know uh-huh. it was gone for about 10 or 11 years and then uh finally tracked him down through his daughter and so they couldn't find the film anywhere and then I asked my psychic if it was still around anywhere and so she told us exactly where it was in his garage and that's exactly where we found it all. And so um it was pretty amazing that uh, that I was able to get it back and get it finished. But uh, uh, it was one of those okay. projects that I did and when we first did it the um you know my partner was trying to cut it and do all the music and do everything and it wasn't working. So we got both got busy working on other projects and then when we got back to it I got back to it in the early 90s and I recut it with a new editor. And then everything was going great, and I almost finished it then. And then the sound house, I did my sound then, went out of business. And a few other things went wrong, and I ran out of money, and I couldn't finish it then. And so then it just sort of like laid around for a long time. And 
And then when I went back to it again and again, everything something would stop me every time I was trying to finish it. So I just, you know, after a while, I just gave up on it. And then the negative cutter disappeared, and then that really put a damper on things. <laughs> so oh, yeah, it was just, you know, I ne- this was the only project I'd ever done in my life that I hadn't been able to finish for some reason or another. And and then when I finally got it all together. You know, I had to. I had all of my original sound that we had done, the foley and uh, the effects, and and all the dialogue editing, on this eight millimeter data storage tape with an Exavite program, and then I couldn't find anywhere to open it up. Uh, right. Finally, found a guy over in Culver City uh, called the History of Recorded Sound. It was this sound house that had every old computer, every old sound machine under the sun. So they were finally able to put it on a, a hard drive on an old Pro Tools program. So, oh, yeah, it was one of the right. very first okay. Pro Tools in the early 90s that uh, that we worked on. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it's crazy. So I, I'm making, I'm cutting with my editor right now, I'm cutting a documentary about the journey that I went through not only shooting the film in early, uh, you know, 80s Hollywood, but, uh, you know, trying to finish it after that. So it's, uh, it's well, a cool that, little yeah, story. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, I I saw a Western at the Hawaii International Film Festival in 2001 called The Hired Hand. Peter mm-hmm. Fonda directed it the year after mm-hmm. Easy Rider, of course. Yeah, Warren Oates, I know it well. Yeah, 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 yeah right. And it's and it was and I loved it and it, but it, it was so overlooked because he was still on the Easy Rider train, and so yeah. this film ended up being released in like 2001 because I remember at that film festival they were saying it was one of the premieres and and then I found out that like there was some legal stuff and a certain studio owned it for three decades and and so um, I thought that was crazy and yeah and and it's a really hard film to find especially now that video stores are gone for, for the audience. But a few of the things that Greg said, and again, uh, I've spoken with Greg. He's he doesn't sound like a condescending person, and the show is not being condescending. But for filmmakers out there, um, shooting a film, you you know, you would record the sound separately on a mag stock through a dash. Yep. Um, yep. You would have to line it up. Whenever you see films that well, are that out came theme. later. Basically, the way we had to do it was uh, you put it on a uh, mag sound. You transfer all of your uh, Nagra smaller tape sound right, to that's a right, mag. Nagra, that's right. It's the Nagra, same right. size as a 16 millimeter film, and then that's how you keep it in sync with yes, your film. Yes. It runs the same time as your film does, and right. so uh, basically, you just have your dialogue on there. And you might have a little bit. There's a second soundtrack role that you can put on there that gives you a few effects and maybe some temp music to work with. But, I mean, you know, going back in to recut it on 16-millimeter flatbed, it took me three months. And I had a pretty good cut going in, but it took me three months just to recut it with an editor just to get it in, you know, what I thought was the final shape. And then when I finally got the negative transferred to 2K and was doing the final finish on it, I cut about another eight or nine minutes out of it and uh, got it down to about 81 minutes, what it is now. Oh, okay. Um, Because on film, for some reason, it's just really hard to tell. You're looking at a flatbed image, and it's just you don't want to, like, start chopping – too much because it's, it's so hard to go back and yet, put it right? back in right. that it's just you 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 tend to leave it a little wide for some reason I've noticed that you know 
Yeah, I mean, because in film school, we we graduate, we we learned sixteen, did the flatbeds, went through the whole joke of when the first time you spaghetti a film reel, Um, Mm -hmm. and so young filmmakers. I'm not saying you have it easier. It's still hard to raise money. It's still hard to come up with a story. It's still hard to, but the actual process. I mean, we did ten minute student short films, and they and and they give us like two, like you said, months. We'd have two minutes just to cut picture, two months to cut picture. But then with yep. Pro Tools, it was like twelve track limit, and you have to, and you had like a month. And so, doing wild tracks, like I really want filmmakers out there to understand that like footsteps would be recorded, um, ambience might have to be messed with. You'd have to go record ambience. Um, mm-hmm. But the recording of sound was so different. I mean, the techniques still apply to getting good sound, and then foleying and and making sure the footsteps are in sync. So whenever you see a mm-hmm. movie where the, uh, for the audience, whenever you see a movie and you complain that the talking is out of sync, it's usually sometimes just because that, that mag stock in print might have been one sprocket hole off. And so now the Well, and then a lot of young filmmakers, what they don't understand is that you really, like you used to, you would take all of your sound elements and you would do a sound mix to the picture. And you still have to do that. You have to do an output of all of your sound elements, and then you turn it over to a sound guy. And a lot of filmmakers, they don't do a Foley track anymore. Evidently, they don't know about that. But I'm telling you, if you do a Foley track, it makes it, it, it enriches the image so much to have all those little noises and those little sound effects in there. Even if they're barely audible, it, it it increases the reality of the of the fantasy that you're presenting, you know. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, like uh, Raging Bull. I mean, hearing those animal noises in the background of Lamada in the Ring just yeah, makes that fit. Yeah, you take away some of those, and that's but, what uh, your creative sound designer does, you know. And uh, you can do all kinds of things, but just having the, all the little footsteps, all the little grabbing the the doorknobs all the little uh, noises that go along with whatever is in that image. I mean, if you've got that to work with, it just makes a huge difference. And a lot right. of filmmakers don't know that because they see they used to they dialogue edited everything. So they wiped the slate clean on the soundtrack and just started with the dialogue and built it back up from there. But now because we have these digital sound recorders, they think it's all there to begin with. Right, you know, but it's not. You really have to redo it all to make it work. You know. Yeah, well, that's and that's an interesting statement because the whole fix it in post, like we got bad sound on a student film and had to actually go record like an hour of bad ambience and add bad mm-hmm. ambience at the track to match <laughs> it. And uh, it, my, I remember our sound teacher was just like, I, "This is the only time I've ever said go and get some bad ambience." He's like, "It's better to have." 100% bad ambience than 90% good ambience. So, and plus people right. are always forgetting that 50% of the movie is sound. We're yep. always putting it on the actors of the DP, but uh, so that could lead us into the, to the DP. Um, I, I'm assuming because we talked about, well, uh, that there was a big citizen Kane influence here and not just because it's black and white, but I, I liked just the angles the cinematography just kind of being where maybe usually the camera would be a foot to the left, that instead it was mm-hmm. a foot to the right. Um, mm-hmm. What was, what was, 
influencing you and your DP at the time? Well, I mean, I had certain ideas and angles, and, you know, I was a big, big Wells fan, and uh, I tried to incorporate some of that. Um, and I was shooting a second camera with a wide-angle lens just as handheld, uh, just, you know, as B-roll stuff. So we, we were able to get some of that. And then, um, you know, Steve, my partner, producer partner in this thing, basically shot it, uh, DP'd it. And uh, we had a pretty good, I think we had a uh, an Airy that we shot most of it with and um, pretty good lenses. So we were able to get a lot of really nice shots. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we focused on trying to get the film more lighting just right. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, for a couple of guys just starting out, you know, it was a it was a pretty ambitious project. Um, I had made a couple of films in high school, feature-length Super 8 films, and Steve had gone to film school, and then I came out here and went to film school and did a few little films, and uh, and then we started doing these video shorts, because the Panasonic um, consumer camera came out that had the sound capabilities in, built in with the camera. It was like an 82, 81 or 82, I believe that camera came out. And my friend got one, and then I got one, and then we started doing all these little video shorts because they even had half-inch editing to go with it. So you could go to a an editor that had the half-inch editing system and cut it. Now, there, and, is this, now this is around the time where, um, I mean, I'm only 37, but I've, I have a few filmmaker friends where in high school, I remember the video cameras where you had to put the VHS tape in the camera, but then yeah, the whole... The whole that especially filmmakers today don't know is you used to take your VCR if you didn't have editing equipment and edit VCR to VCR. Yeah, um, that was so, it. Well, yeah, then you like, had special, you had like one player. Uh, well, no, you, you got two players because the controller in between the two controlled both machines. So, yeah, you would go from your master VHS and one player to your recorder. Um, you know, and then you'd have a controller in between with two monitors. So it was cool. We had we eventually got one of those, and then we you know were able to edit with that. Otherwise, you would have to transfer the your original VHS to a three quarter tape, and then use the three quarter editing machines to cut it. You know, okay. and uh, well, so you could try to edit from machine to machine, but usually get some of that, you know, fallout and some of the uh the little uh gray uh what do you call it the little uh, you know fallout in between the cuts because it wasn't a perfect way to do it um right you really and then need an editing machine to get the, like an, to get the clean cuts that. you know yeah is yeah. so you said you had mentioned uh so you, uh where did you go to film school uh Sherwood Oaks Experimental College it was on Hollywood okay. Boulevard and they okay. had great teachers like uh, William Freakin taught um, a okay. class there that I got in. And um, and um, Clue Gilliger was an acting teacher there. And uh, Gary Shusett, whose brother wrote Alien and, uh, you know, some other big science fiction films. I think he did uh, – I want to say – no, I don't think he did Total Recall. He did Alien and he did maybe a couple other big ones. 
and Gary was the uh, you know the owner and the he ran the whole show and he always got these great uh, professionals in the business to teach classes there. You know, like uh, Paul Schrader would come in and do lectures. Uh-huh. You know, totally drunk out of his mind, but still it was very interesting. And uh, I love you know in those Paul days Schrader. it was a while it was a little wilder. You know, people were a little bit uh, you know a little bit alcoholic and a little bit crazier. This was like seventy seven. You know. Oh and, yeah, uh, so I mean yes, I mean I uh, for all the uh, seventy-eight actually. Yeah, for, for yeah. the audience, uh, you know, this was the time period of Taxi Driver, seventy-eight Deer Hunter, but also yeah. Julia Phillips, who at that time was the only woman to win a Best Picture Oscar um, with the stage. Right. But uh, her her book, I want to recommend this to the audience. Uh, you'll never eat lunch in this town again. Uh, <laughs> it it explains. The the late great Julia Phillips explains everything, and and she produced Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind and yeah. Taxi Driver, and that book is just really shows you how the adventure has changed to just a regular party. Maybe you have too too many glasses of wine or beer, whatever's free, and then you just email each other. Um, so yeah, that's a, I'm glad that you brought that up and that this film has. Yeah, such a I mean, and unfortunately, and I didn't really partake in any kind of drugs until because i was i was raised in a health food store and my parents were really healthy and i didn't it took a while like you know mid 80s before i even you know knew about any kind of stuff like that but um unfortunately from like the late 70s um to like the late 80s uh cocaine kind of devastated hollywood you know right um it really came into play in a lot of movies that uh you know and if you look at 80s movies there's this hyped up kind of neon feel about the from like 82 to 86 they kind of have this hyped up neon thing going on that uh well, a lot of it was the MTV lighting carried over into the movies. Oh yes, MTV. You know when it MTV used to influence music. was a big thing. But <laughs> all of the MTV videos and a lot of the movies then were very fueled by drugs. You know, and uh, a lot of the filmmakers were really coked up. And I guess there was a little bit of that, you know, floating around in the comedy world and in the in the in the little bit of it, you know, under the. Radar and dark seduction, but nothing overt, nothing out front. Uh, it was all, you know, kept kind of private. And but uh, uh, yeah, see, it was a very big uh, problem in the '80s. Was uh, you know trying to keep uh, kind of keep you know from your crew and your cast, uh, you know, from going overboard with all that stuff. Right. Know? Well, that's why um, I, I, I. This is so interesting that that you made this in '84 because. Um, again, audience out there, if you ever have a chance to read Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, it it breaks down from Easy Rider to like when the box office took over in the mid '80s. Even though Jaws and Star Wars started it, and it just goes through the the it, it's like a Wolf of Wall Street decade of uh, that did produce some of the great American filmmakers like Scorsese and Bogdanovich mm-hmm. and Spielberg and Coppola. And uh, I suggest that as a read, it really makes films make more sense in American films. Um, that was kind of like our French New Wave. And yeah. uh, so now that you're saying it was made in the 80s, it's really interesting because something that was that kept hitting me was this film 
feels like someone who was directing in the 70s or how the 70s kind of got to, like you said, seep into the 80s before it really was box office, box office, box office, star, Mm -hmm. corporate. Mm -hmm. And I was really thinking, how did this, I could see, I thought you just shot it like a year ago. So I was thinking, how did this director manage to capture the actual feeling that you get when you watch the last picture show or easy rider or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so this is uh, really cool. I am, I'm very excited about this. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's an 80s, uh, 40s mix because we've got a 40s detective in the 80s vampire world. So we just went with that because we didn't have the budget to do the whole thing in the 40s. So we just went with this 80s, 40s mix like there's some sort of time shift, you know, bizarre time shift going on. We don't really call that much attention to it, but it kind of works in a weird way. You don't really notice it after you get into the movie. You're not thinking, oh, this looks 80s, this looks 40s. It all kind of blends together, you know. And uh, it works really well that way. I've never had anybody say that it took them out of the film, you know. If anything, it, it just uh, enhanced the the feeling and the look of it. And so um, now, how do how do how does something like you know, once obviously the old saying, once it's on film or now video and cut, it's done. How is um, what is it like as a director to uh, not just look back a year later and say, oh, you know what, maybe I could have had the actor talk a little slower, but to literally have a you know three decades where you can look back <laughs> now and be like, oh, you know, I should have rehearsed a week or. You know, this yeah, maybe and like, and the what? thing of it, the thing of it is about that is the the technology changed in me trying to finish it three different times. So first it started out film with analog tape, then it went over to three quarter video, trying transferring it over to three quarter, with trying to find the cut there, then uh, digital, finally finishing it on digital, and so um, there was a big, you know, technical obstacles that we had to jump through hoops to get that done but you know all in all I kind of got the best I could possibly get out of my actors I had some really good comedic actors to work with and you know I mean uh, you know I cut the best stuff that I had to work with and uh, you know use that and I think it all works pretty good I mean at the screening they laughed from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie it got more laughs than I had ever even imagined because it's kind of dark and moody and you know it's got some you know some mood texture to it uh, along the way but it all sort of was very funny to the audience so I was tickled to death that it was as uh, big a comedy as that, uh, you know, I didn't know it would be that funny, but it evidently is, you know. Where, where did, um, so where, um, where has it shown since you completed we, it? We premiered it April 1st at the New Art Theater on uh, Santa Monica. And um, so that was the world premiere and the big press premiere. And then, um it's it's lined up in a few festivals. The Action on Film Festival it's going to be in, and I'm waiting to find out about a couple others. And then uh, I'm going to slowly show it as a midnight movie uh, in in New York and, and possibly Chicago, and then again in L.A. and maybe San Francisco after the um, the VOD and DVD release. Um, 
towards the end of the year and towards next year, I'm going to try to get it going as a midnight movie in these various locations. Well, uh, while we're on the subject, why don't you throw in... Um, oh, so you don't have any dates for New York, but you have... I don't have specific... any uh, midnight dates yet. I'm I'm, oh, okay. I'm working with the company that showed it at the New Art, and they're the landmark theater chain, and then, so they're going to you know, help me out with that. And um, Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Slowly but surely, hopefully we can get it going as a regular midnight movie. That's my my goal with that. But, uh, you know, obviously I would love everybody to get a copy of it, either on VOD or DVD. Uh, the Blu-ray will have a few extras. Uh, the trailer, the promotional video is online now on Facebook. There's a six-minute um, promotional uh, video that we did. And then uh, I've got the documentary that will be about 50 minutes to an hour that will give you the whole story of the whole film before, during, and after. And, oh, uh, okay. So that will come out with the movie and on the DVD. And then also uh, I might have it online somewhere. I don't know yet. I might have it on my website, which is gtfilmproductions.com. And... Um, Oh, you know, okay. might enter, I might enter it in uh, some festivals too, just the documentary alone to see, uh, you know, to see if people respond to that. I mean, it is kind of a fun story about young filmmakers, you know, getting involved in this film and then it, you know, becoming a, a long journey in order to finish it. You know. Oh <laughs> and, yeah, I mean that's that's more than two days over budget or, or over schedule. Um, actually, yeah. Uh, those making yeah, up docs are so fun. I just watched um, one on Wonderful Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then there's that mm-hmm. really fun. Um, I actually liked the documentary more than the movie, and actually the producer was a guest on our show, um, Full Tilt Boogie. Um, if you guys haven't seen it, it's a it's a making of documentary about Tarantino's and Robert Rodriguez's vampire movie. From Dust Till Dawn, and it was oh, George okay. Clooney's no, I have not first seen that. Yeah, yeah, you know, check Netflix. It frequently goes up and down. It's, it's again, it's full tilt boogie, and it's a ninety-minute documentary where, like, you know, they interviewed Grips and they interviewed Craft Services, and it just really showed the teamwork aspect that it's not just Tarantino mm-hmm. walks in, does everything, the movie star walks oh, out, and it's perfect. So it's a, a really fun one. So. That's cool that you're making a documentary, and please uh, let us know when it's done or going to be put out, and we can and we can mention that. Uh, we uh, once someone comes on, they're always welcome back. So it's just one of those things where we call it the Talking Pictures family tree. So, sure. Well, I appreciate you know, that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of Wells's uh, F for Fake, and so. Um, I've seen it a million times. I even went over to uh, the Arrow and watched it on the big screen not too long ago when they were showing it with um, Chimes at Midnight. Uh, they had a um, digital re- restoration of Chimes at Midnight that I had never seen, and so they showed that, and then Effort Fake. And uh, Effort Fake is a unique little documentary. I mean, a lot of people say it's not a documentary. It's more of an essay, whatever that means, but uh, it's a documentary <laughs> form. And uh, so I'm kind of using that as my as my uh, template of um, you know how to go about putting this one together because there's so many pictures and elements that I have that it's uh, it's going to be very rich and very fast paced. So uh, it'll quite it should be a lot of fun for people. You know. Well, that's great, and I mean, speaking of Wells, 
it's it's uh, it's tough. Uh, I know we discussed this on the phone, but uh, for all you movie fans and our listeners, uh, with Wells, it's like have people feel like it. Citizen Kane was the only thing he made, or Touch of e- and Touch of Evil, and then Touch yeah. of Evil, of course, that opening shot was then led to the, that just superb crane shot that opens Boogie Nights, and then of course they used it in Altman's The Player. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson kind of always does one long shot in his movies, right. Right. which is also a Scorsese thing. I think sometimes oh, yeah, I he say, does he's... one long shot. He did the Goodfellas thing, but right. I'm not sure he did it in uh, Raging Bull, but I know he got into the long oh, shot. Well, actually, and... there is one in Raging Bull where he he uh, he he comes back with – he said he comes back with Pesci and De Niro – as they mm-hmm. come out of the training room, they come down this long hall. Then it goes up the steps, down. That's right. Yeah, it goes up. them all. Yeah. It takes them all the way into the ring. That's right. Yeah. He did do that. So, yep. Yep. So yeah, and P.T. Yep. Anderson is the first to say he he takes uh, everything from Scorsese. And I'm basically, if there was, if you're a pick a generation, that's kind of what my generation would be considered in film school. It was always talking about P.T. Anderson. And Alexander Finch and or, or David Fincher, Alexander Payne, um, and and it was really not to be derogatory. I knew guys in film school that would that would not watch black and white movies, but hmm. would but would love Scorsese. And I'd be like, don't you get that? Like Scorsese, like the the first half of this movie that you watch, Scorsese takes from. John Ford and Howard Hobbs and yeah. you know and the Searchers. That's I mean that's color of course, but I mean the Searchers. The first twenty minutes of the Searchers is the first twenty minutes of Star Wars. So it's like I never understand when someone won't watch a John Ford western, but they'll watch George Lucas copying it, and um, and it's just epic and it's unheard of and it's yeah it's I don't get the black and white thing. I think black and white cinema is actually much more beautiful than color cinema in a way because everything is even and everything is balanced and uh, the, the the compositions are a lot more clean and clear in a lot of ways, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, things change and sensibilities change and, you know, if it's not appreciated by a new generation, then maybe the next generation will appreciate it, you know. But right. uh, I certainly do. I certainly love black and white. And um, well, the black and white. I think there was a. I remember it was in a Bogdanovich book. I think, and I, I think he was interviewing Wells, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but Wells said something about he told him to shoot the last picture show in black and white because he said black and white makes everything look good. So yeah. it'll save you time with your production designer, your costumes. <laughs> yeah. And what's really interesting is that movie is brilliant. Again, everyone out there, if you haven't seen The Last Picture Show, I am so yep. happy that I see it in libraries. Watch it. It's Jeff Bridges. Uh, got an Oscar nomination. I think it was 18 or something. Um, mm-hmm. It's got Sybil Shepherd and and uh, But, yeah, it, it kind of does, because when you think about that cast in a color movie, it mm. does not remotely match as well. Or if you even think of The Last Picture Show in color, it's like no, you know? no. Um, I've never. No, it's a brilliant movie. black and white film. He used a couple of uh, uh, Wellsian things in that. Um, Wells told him to use the red filter to get more of blacks, 
that they would give the blacks a much richer texture. And so he used a red filter on a lot of it. I think a lot of the outdoor stuff, um, which was a Wells idea. And also on the wide angle stuff, he uh, he took from Wells and shot some wide angle lens stuff, you know, in the living room and the different outside shots were wide angle. So, Well, plus he was, um, for, for those of you that don't know, Peter Bogdanovich, please look him up. I mean, he's, he has a director, last picture show, What's Up, Doc? And then he's just kind of considered someone who fizzled out. But he did make that brilliant, I found it, thought it was brilliant. Well, he was one of the top the directors at the, in the 70s. I mean, you know, right, after right. he did last picture show, he won all these Academy Awards. And they they were basically giving him carte blanche, you know, right. on all of his movies. He did three big studio films that all three were kind of considered failures. Um, yeah, Daisy Miller, I forget the other but his one. Other but bit, what was his other big hit that was with his daughter that was uh, – not his daughter, but hey, – Oh, with, yes, uh, of course. Brian O'Neill's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paper, Paper Moon. Paper, Paper Moon, Moon yeah. That was another nine. huge hit that he had yeah. early on in his career, yeah. Well, he had – well, see, that was the thing I remember. There's always that thing that's in history, film history books about Bogdanovich where it says – very, this is a very hard film to find targets, and I think it's a great film, but Bogdanovich says on the commentary, basically the movie's about a sniper, and it was rele- it was supposed to release the week that Robert F. Kennedy was killed. So, like, nobody wanted to see targets. And now and then it became, like, this relic, and I found it in, like, a $1.99 box at Blockbuster when they were going oh, out of business. Oh, that's so, right. That's yeah, right. And that, yeah, and that was more of a Hitchcock film. It had a lot of POV shots. And then Last Picture Show, people say he's trying to do John Ford. And then uh-huh. Paper Moon, they say he's trying to do a Howard Hawks screwball comedy. Or not Paper Moon, What's Up, Doc? And then Paper Moon is, is like you said, is the, is the Wells. So, and of course, for people that don't know, I mean, Bogdanovich has so many books where he interviews these guys. I mean, he was being mentored by Orson Welles. He was hanging yeah. out with Howard Hawks. So, but I, he was that, unique in the fact that he was had enough film history knowledge to be able to sit down with a lot of these old guys right. and uh, hold his own uh, with their work and know their work, like John Ford, even though John Ford was giving him a hard time on his interview. I don't think John Ford really liked to be interviewed. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, they didn't really have a lot of answers there wasn't this you know cinephile kind of mentality back in old hollywood in the 40s and 50s they were more craftsmen they thought like craftsmen they worked like craftsmen they planned things out and they executed them they didn't think of it as high art and all of that came in sort of in the 70s as the director is auteur with the french and the scorsese uh group of filmmakers they started looking at it as more of like uh, the Artur artist uh, director than uh, than they used to. So yeah, no, I mean that's the old timers were just crap. They were just you know guys who could write a script and you know flesh out a story and then uh, you know figure out how to the best way to shoot it. You know. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, my my I own the last picture show, Easy Rider, Graduate, uh, Midnight Cowboy, um, Coming Home. Hal Ashby mm-hmm. is one of my favorite directors. The last yeah, Hal Ashby was great. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know he's one of the ones who actually you know died so early, but he actually was one of those seven inch directors that has the audience. 
90% of the audience, you probably know the movie Harold and Maude, but yeah. he, you know, the last detail was a hit, got Jack Nicholson, Nostra Nod, launch uh, Randy Quaid, um, right. being there was a hit. Um, so the, the only thing he had that some people probably wouldn't like, but it was actually a hit, was Bound for Glory, the Woody Guthrie biopic, which I enjoyed. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like the last. Yeah. So he, so he was someone who, but he was, but he was so against the system. He wouldn't play the, play the game. So I think that's why he didn't, he didn't, he, he doesn't get. You bring him up and people say who, but in reality, I think he, I think it was he made seven films and every single one was did at least good at the box office and got great reviews and is revered by filmmakers. Well, so and also, he, you know, those guys, there were guys who, there were directors who just weren't as attached to the editing process as as some of the later directors. Like Sam Peckinpah was much more of an editor. I mean, he, you know, even though he came from writing and directing, and broke into that way. He sat there with the editor and, and shaped his film. But there were other directors like John Ford would just shoot what he wanted the editor to work with, and that was all he gave the editor. He wouldn't do any close-ups. He wouldn't do anything that he didn't want in the movie. And so that's how he controlled it. Because back in those days, they didn't allow the directors to sit there with the editor and shape the movie. But in my opinion... The editing process is where the movie is made. There's no doubt about it. You you gather all of these little bits of film, but it's how you put them together, how you underscore them, and how you shape them into what is the movie. That is where the movie's made. And uh, you know, can you imagine not being able to edit your own film? I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, but back yeah. in the and, day, that was the way they made them. You know, you yeah. go out, you direct it, the shooting, and then you give it to the editor, and they, based on what's in the script, the editor puts it together based on the script. You know, so right. And there's uh, Hal Ash. I mean, Hal Ashby was uh, he was an editor, William yeah. Wyler's assistant editor. So think of right. what he learned from William William Wyler, who of course mm-hmm. everyone mainly associates with Ben Hur, but he has other great films, Best Years of Our Lives and uh The Desperate Hours with Bogart. Um so yeah, there's a lot of um there's a lot of stuff that's connected to the past that I, I'm always kind of uh like when I hear people say they refuse to watch um you know, a Western but then they watch Star Wars and it's like well, that scene right that that scene right there is just stormtroopers following him instead of Native Americans. So it's like, yeah. or or my favorite, the best one of all is when people say they will not watch a Hitchcock movie, but then they love thrillers, or they love. Why nail wouldn't biters. they watch a Hitchcock movie? Well, the people that are against black and white, or oh, I or see. you know, or don't like old films, and so, but then they'll tell you how much they love a movie, and it's just. It's like that movie's just a Hitchcock movie with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman, you know, <laughs> like yeah. So it's exactly. really interesting. Exactly. I'm always, I'm always intrigued by that. So, and again, here at the show, the audience and new audience, um, it, all this is never to talk snooty or talk down or or we know more. I know that's associated a lot with uh, especially out here in LA when you talk about films in a certain way, but. Uh, we're just here to take a look at 
you know, movies from today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So um, with that, uh, Greg, if there's anything else you'd like to uh, mention, um, we're coming on the time where I'll uh, let you go and review the film. So, well, I would uh, I would love it if everybody would uh, you know search out and and buy uh, you know download uh, Dark Seduction on VOD coming out in September and October on the DVD and um, and and watch for it um, you know it's um, it's a comedy it's a little bit of a drama it's a fantasy it's film noir it's uh, you know, it's a cool little movie, and um, it's 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 super macho versus uh, super femme, so it's got a lot going on there. You know, I think it'll appeal to a wide range of people. You know. Okay, excellent, and we'll, and I'm gonna before I let Greg go, I'm just gonna send out the website here, www.gtfilmproductions.com. That's all one word, www.gt as in Tom filmproductions.com and you also see some of the other projects they have going on there so yeah um, I got uh, all out. three of my films yeah yep and yeah. um yeah the dark seduction page is on gtfilmproductions.com and uh, that's my initials Greg Travis <laughs> yes 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 so um again we appreciate your time Greg and Oh, also watch for my other movie, Midlife, which is out on uh, iTunes and uh, Indie Rain. Uh, It's a uh, Cassavetes-style comedy drama, and um, it's pretty cool. Color, digital, modern film, and um, be sure and watch for Midlife out there as well. I was going to say, Cassavetes brings up a whole style and a whole, uh, uh, literally a whole other podcast. Um, yep, yeah, we'll have to talk about that one the next time. <laughs> yeah, I dig the Cassavetes films that I've been able to find. Um, uh, Woman Under the Influence is just, yeah, we know, we, we can talk about that for sure. So, definitely, um, definitely. Well, and I also and, appreciate you taking the time to do this, Paul. I know we've been trying to get together for a while now, but uh, schedule wise, it's been difficult. But uh, I appreciate you reviewing it, and uh, I ho- I'm glad that you liked it. Yeah. Excellent. You're welcome, and I'll and I'll get you the link uh, as soon as it's up. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Have a good one. Uh, have a good day. Okay. You too. Uh, that was Mr. Greg Travis, and we had a good. T- I'm having a great time because anytime someone wa- wants to talk '70s film, I'm in. I've literally had the good fortune to have some friends that we've talked '70s film '70s films for three hours, and it's like that's still not enough. So. Um, Dark Seduction, we discussed it, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, mixing a horror film and a thriller and a film noir and some comedic moments, the cinematography is just superb. Um, Even if you just, as a cinematography student or cinematographer, check it out, especially since it was made on 16 and before there was Pro Tools and all these video options and you couldn't just fix it in post with a button you had to get it um you had to get the shot um the acting is what it's supposed to be for the piece so anything that seems cheesy or over the top is actually just meeting the genre um and i just love as i mentioned earlier in the show but in the review i love that this filmmaker chose to give a little tip of the hat to kurosawa billy wilder John Ford. If you don't know these films, filmmakers, 
please IMDb them. There's such a treasure there. And this film, Dark Seduction, kind of keeps that bridge to those films alive and keeps something new and unique mixed with the old. So, um, again, entertaining, brilliant, and actually, I would say, I'd, even, I'd say even significant to understand the, the other influences on it and apply it to yourself. It's like when we were talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. Everybody wanted to be Paul Thomas Anderson. Instead of taking from Paul Thomas Anderson, just to fiercely follow your own path. That's all Paul Thomas Anderson did. He didn't create film. He didn't create the crane shot. He didn't create zany characters. So take the passion um, again, it's going to be on VOD. We will drop, let you know the date once we get it. Um, and please support this film. Uh, definitely a solid four and a half out of five stars. Um, there, there are a few scenes that might not be for everyone, but the, but it, but it will not detract from the movie being worth it overall. So um, we want to say aloha as always. We, especially right now at this time in the world, we want to send out peace to everyone. And whether you're listening to this in the morning, afternoon, or evening, make sure and watch a good movie today. Oh, no.